0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132.
0: Welcome
1: to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, who's also a senior economist to WisdomTree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foreside Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, and not those of WisdomTree. Phillips. We're gonna have a really interesting discussion on technology trends uh, with the portfolio manager. Uh, but before we turn to, to him, Professor, we got inflation out this week. What's your take on the markets and what you're
2: seeing in the economy here? Yeah, I mean, extremely close to expectations on the, uh, you know, on the good side. Um, uh, you know, probabilities uh, seem now low for a September increase. They're not giving up on a skip increase, but there's so much time you know, between that. The only thing that bears watching, again, because we've always said that jobless claims are the earliest indicator of softness in the labor market. We did have a, an unexpected jump there, but again, one week means very little, especially in the summer, Um, but it does always bear watching. Uh, we also, continue to have firmness in commodity prices, oil hitting the upper end of its range. Um, uh, you know, the strength of the general economy is is still with us. Uh, we, we still don't see any deterioration. Um, again, you know, as we get through August, September, often uh, as people come back from their vacations and see the credit card and credit card debt has built up. Sometimes we might see a cutback in spending, something to to bear looking at. Uh, Again, I don't think that would hit until until September. Um, We should also comment um, about labor costs, uh, particularly with the outsized uh, huge demands of the UAW. uh, for Ford and uh, GM, which if they're totally implemented, which is unlikely since it's a bargaining uh, position, at, at the, would, would be tens of billions of dollars for those companies. Tesla is not a union shop, um, so it's a, they're going not going to be definitely under and the market share of Tesla far exceeds the market share of Ford and um, uh, GM uh, in terms of how it affects the S&P 500. Uh, however, what we have is uh, what, what we've mentioned here before, uh, workers have fallen behind. Uh, they did not have cost of living clauses. They went out in the um, uh, the 90s um, and 2000s because of low inflation. Um, So they fell behind. So they're asking for catch-up. Um, of course, they're pointing out the huge salaries that the CEOs get. But um, the big thing is that under fixed contracts, Uh, of unexpected inflation. You're going to need that. So there is going to have to be an upward uh, adjustment. We had a pretty big settlement with UPS. UPS uh, has been a mediocre company this year. I'm not going to say because of, you know, a higher labor cost, although there have been warnings on that uh, 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 and what, what might happen in foreign labor. But we have to expect catch up. By workers who have been on fixed contracts and have fallen uh, uh, below inflation, the trend. Uh, of course, we mentioned last week, the trend towards better productivity um, is definitely something that uh, is a very positive for profits. It's very positive for the economy. So even and with the softening labor market, we could still get GDP growing at, at a very uh, rapid rate. So um, I'm not, you know, I don't I don't see any. Change may uh, major. There's more people that are looking at the inflation and other factors and saying, you know what, you know, we really done the job and we can't squeeze the economy much more because of that. Um, and again, I am sure that uh, Jay Paul is getting that word. There'll be a lot more data before the September 20th meeting, um, clearly. Um, And uh, I think uh, every meeting will look at, it, at everything that's happening. Without a, a big worsening of the situation, some sort of um, uh, unexpected jump, though, the odds are now very much against in the market uh, for a September increase. Um, I will tend to agree with that. Professor, some of my economist friends have have uh, teased me
1: saying nobody cares about your alternative shelter measures. But I will say our our measures of inflation this this after the report were zero point five percent headline, one and a half percent core instead of the three two and four seven that's the official BLS. But I also say I don't know if you saw the San Francisco Fed paper they put out on their forecasts on the shelter inflation, and they sort of put. A band seeing the shelter inflation from the BLS can go negative mid next year, uh, and mm-hmm. sort of it's got a steady down path. And so, you know, they they're definitely putting out some estimates saying yes. This is going I have to be-
2: I have read that, and it, this is something that's been well known. Of course, it's so lagged that it. You know, uh, Jay Powell uh, last year thought it was going to happen second half of this year. Now. It may start happening the second half of this year. We are in the second half of this year, but again, that it extends all the way into 2024. Now, we I think this last CPI was a 0.4 increase in, in, the, in the shelter. Again, a string of 0.4, 0.5s. Earlier, it was 0.7, 0.8. We are going down, but again, this tremendous lag. Now, you know, people say they don't care. I do think that, that there has been a big shift towards what's called real-time indicators. There's an awareness at the Fed that that shelter indicator uh, gave way too low warning of inflation early on and um, is eventually going to go down, <laughs> at which point, as we've already mentioned, uh, the, the, there has been a stability, a stabilizing of the case shower uh, index. Not so much, I'm not sure, on the housing side, on the apartment list, on and Zillow, uh, but certainly on the case show where we now see uh, that um, uh, resuming a very mild uptrend. Of course, mortgage rates uh, with the the tenure as it is are, you know, four and a quarter, four and three eighths with no points. Um, You know, that's going to keep the general market uh, cool. But again, people are seeing houses as a great hedge. They're stretching, stretching, uh, to make that work, keeping that housing market strong. We know we've underbuilt over a period of 10, 20 years. Um, so there is some catch up there. Um, but yeah, that if it goes, if, it, if shelter goes negative, being 41% of the core, um, <laughs> that's, that's going to drive that inflation down to that 2% level even faster than what the Fed forecasts uh, in their SEP reports.
1: As you think about all these things, implications for the markets, you came into the year very aggressively bullish, and then the market moved ahead quickly. How do you think about where we've come uh, in, in, in the markets and how you think about it for the next uh, six months? You
2: no, know, I I think that although there's been a little slight turnish, there's still a disbelief about a rally, which means a rally could keep on going. Um, I mean, earnings have Came in very well on the second quarter without huge warnings on the third quarter. Um, So, uh, you know, my feeling is, is that uh, there's been a little stutter step on particularly NASDAQ and a couple others with the with, you know, the 10 year, you know, being at four and above now. um, My feeling is the trend is still upward uh, in the short run. Um, let's take a look at September and October to see whether, you know, that trend will break down. But I still think that given, uh, sentiment and momentum, um, and the, the lack of negatives that we, we still have a short-term up market. Um, if we see those jobless games begin to rise, uh, though that, that will, that'll put a damper on any further rise for, for the S&P. Uh, again, 20 times or 21 times earnings, uh, but on the cyclicals, uh, 16, 17. um, And um, that still seems reasonable to me. Well, our conversation today is going to focus
1: on the more expensive tech sector with an active portfolio manager. So we'll get his comments on where things are there. Professor, thank you for some comments to start the show. Thank you. We'll see you next week. All right. Now we will be turning our conversation over. Uh, We had Dom, Rizzo, who's a portfolio manager for T. Rowe Price, and he covers the global technology equity strategy for T. Rowe. And we also have Christopher Gennady, who's Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, one of my colleagues, registered rep of Foreside Fund Services. Dom, welcome to Behind the Markets.
3: Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Really appreciate it.
1: I appreciate you taking some time from your summer Friday. Could be at the beach, uh, but you're here with us, so we appreciate that. Tell us a little bit About yourself, tell us about your role at T-Row Price.
3: Yeah, so I started at T-Row in 2015 on our world-class small cap value franchise. Uh, I was given coverage of semiconductors at the time. Believe it or not, no one wanted to cover semiconductors in 2015 in small cap land. Uh, Well, you guys saw what happened, and and many of those names became mid-cap growth stocks very, very quickly. I moved over to the technology team then, and then in 2018, I was asked to move to London to take over as our European technology analyst. Um, that was a great coverage set because I was able to cover hardware names, software names, semiconductor names, payment names, really broaden out my understanding of the technology universe, uh, and eventually kind of uh, more geographies as well. So Asia and more U.S. names too. Uh, then finally, December 1st, I took over as, you know, portfolio manager of the global technology equity strategy here at t moved back to Maryland, uh in february and then my wife and i had our first uh baby in june so it's been a eventful 12 months
1: <laughs> congrats on that and uh you know it's exciting well we'll get to talk about europe some people say the u.s has outperformed europe because they lack technology companies but we'll come back to that later it's fascinating that you to, to hear semis were small cap value before they became growth um they are now viewed as the centerpiece of what's what's driving the market. what's what's your view on that sector
3: broadly? Yeah, well, you know, I'm I, I trying to put all the sectors and all technology through my framework, which is what I've built up over time. Um, and, 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 and there's really four things that we're looking for on the global technology equity strategy. The first is what I call linchpin technologies. So these are technologies that are mission critical to the success of their customers or make their users' lives dramatically better. The quintessential one for ai right now is obviously nvidia and i know you had the tweet about nvidia recently so so i'm sure we'll talk about that one Um, the second is those companies should be innovating in secular growth markets so what i like to say internally is we don't buy companies that sell lifeboats to sinking ships Uh, the third is to make sure that they have improving fundamentals so that often takes the place of takes the form of either organic revenue acceleration Operating margin expansion, or free cash flow conversion improvement, and then finally the fourth, and which is really important in tech. You know, we have alluded to this, that tech is relatively a more expensive subsector, but you want to make sure you're buying names with reasonable valuations. So you put all four of those things together, and that's how we kind of put our portfolio together. Uh, when I look at the semiconductor space, I, I think it looks pretty good on all those metrics. So if we start with uh, you know Linchpin Technology status. Uh, you know, I think AI is a sustaining innovation, not a disruptive in- innovation, um, and it's very silicon intensive, which means a lot more digital semiconductors, a lot more memory, which should eventually li- lead to a lot more semi-capital equipment being used to build out new foundries. Um, innovating in secular growth markets, AI, uh, the AI chip tam is, you know, has explosive growth. AMD has a great stat on this. They think that the AI chip total addressable market is going from $30 billion this year to $150 billion by 2027, which is a 50% taker. Um, With improving fundamentals, we could talk about more specifically, but most names across the space, particularly in digital semis, have revenue that's accelerating, operating margins that are expanding, and free cash flow conversion that's improving. And then finally, reasonable valuations. There's a couple of expensive stocks, obviously, NVIDIA being the most obvious. But there's also some very reasonably priced stocks such as taiwan semi and samsung in the group so I, I i like the digital semi space specifically today and allows a whole different story and i'm sure we can talk about that too
1: well you, you highlighted in the video one which is to me it did capture the most expensive stock in the s p on a price to sales basis it's sort of 40 times trailing 25 forward if you presume these analyst estimates are right for something that's expensive like that how do you how does your team think about Nvidia? It's sort of symbolic of the entire space, but it has' it run too far? How do you think about it?
3: Yeah, again, we just go through the framework uh, <laughs> in many ways, Nvidia's status as the linchpin has only been more solidified over the past twelve months. um maybe if we take a step back and we talk about what's happening in AI and why the Nvidia GPU is so powerful uh and then we could talk about how we navigate the, kind of the near-term dynamics with the fundamentals and the valuation and the stock itself. Um, so why is the GPU so powerful? It's really the parallel processing capability of the GPU that makes it perfect fit for AI. Uh, if, if I gave you an analogy, it's probably the best way to do this. Historically, most of the data center workloads ran, ran on CPUs, right? Central processing units, uh, primarily from Intel, historically. And those process data serially, where a GPU does it parallelly. Uh, I, I like this analogy because it, 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 gives, it gives a good understanding of it. If you task the CPU with finding all the times Charles Dickens says the word the in A Tale of Two Cities, it would start on page one. And it would say it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Right, And it would count through the whole book. And so after the first sentence, it'd say there's two thus. A GPU, on the other hand, from NVIDIA, would rip the book into 100 pages, read all those pages at the same time, and then count all the, those thes. And you could just see how dramatically more efficient that is for, for um, finding context in large sums of data. You combine that with the innovations that we've seen at the large language model level, particularly what's called the transformer architecture, and you've seen just in this incredible explosion of capability for AI. And that's why it feels like you're talking to a human, right, when you're talking to chat GPT. It's because it has ma- massive parallel capabilities, scalability, and some context with all the Internet data that we've seen. So now we're using all of these GPUs to train the data, train these models, which is just incredible sil- incredibly silicon-intensive. And we've seen it start to come through NVIDIA's numbers, right? Jeremy, we were talking about last. Last quarter, the the print heard around the world for NVIDIA. Going into the print, the stock was trading at over 50 times earnings. Um, And what actually ended up happening post the print is we saw earnings for fiscal 26 go from roughly $6 at the beginning of this year to well north of $12. And that's even gone even higher since then. Uh, That $12 represents over $30 billion of net income and over $30 billion of free cash flow. So you got to balance between, of course, the stock is up a lot in the short term, um, but you put it through the framework, you understand their linchpin status, they have very, very strongly improving fundamentals, and then you got to balance the the position size to
0: reflect the valuation. And and Dom, something that I try to think about when thinking about GPUs is you step back and you say, NVIDIA has clearly taken the mind share of basically the entire world. So when when you think of GPUs, you basically think of NVIDIA within the next split second. You know that AMD is coming out with a new processor probably towards the end of this year. Uh, in theory, Intel can also make GPUs. But what, what's interesting is you don't see a lot of substitutability. At least I admit, I, I don't see a lot of substitutability, which means that if 150 billion by 2027 comes to fruition, you almost sit there and think: Is Nvidia expected to capture ne- nearly all of that, or-, or do you think it's credible to say we're going to get a second supplier of significance in the market? It's a great question, Chris. It's probably the question that I'm spending the most time
3: on right now. So, <laughs> um, well, historically, it's been Nvidia's software moat more so even than its hardware moat that has kept its dominance in this market, right? The CUDA framework, which uh, I, I'm sure many people have heard about. Uh, CU- CUDA is so powerful because so many different software companies and so many different engineers have been trained on it, have coded on top of it, and really understand that framework, right? And so it's kind of this self-perpetuating cycle. If you know how to use the GPUs. You, you keep using more and more people are trained on them. Not only that, NVIDIA constantly makes, constantly makes CUDA better. Uh, the counter argument is that these hyperscale scalers have some of the best software engineers in the entire world and they don't want to be a whole beat beholden to a single supplier, right? You know, if, if if you do the math on what that $150 billion AI tab means for the CapEx budget of the three major hyperscalers, uh, they want a second source, right? And so we're starting to see um, different software frameworks that will allow for some switchability in the data center. Uh, there's one, not to get too technical, but, but one call from, uh, from OpenAI called Triton that runs under PyTorch that can port relatively easily to an AMD GPU. Um, and so I do think we'll see a second source. The math in semiconductors over time, particularly in digital semiconductors in the data center, is that there's always a second source for a long time. AMD was always the second source to Intel to keep them honest. I think that AMD has a strong capability of being a, a second source in the data center as well, as these hyperscalers want to make sure that they, that they uh, are, are, are able to keep NVIDIA honest. You know, you alluded to the chip that they have coming out in the back half. It's called the MI300. Um, it's, a, it's a really powerful, amazing chip with lots of what's called high bandwidth memory. And high bandwidth memory is really important for AI. Nvidia came out with a chip not that long ago, two or three days ago, called Grace Hopper 2.0. That chip as well has a lot of high bandwidth memory. So this this is never uh, setting still and uh, staying still in semis, right? People are going to always kind of keep progressing forward. But I think there's going to be a place for numerous players. Uh, historically, if you look at the market, one player typically gets the majority of the share, potentially two thirds of the share. But there's other players such as Asics from you know that the companies design themselves like Google or Amazon or third-party merchant vendors like AMD, potentially Intel, but there's a lot that has to go right with their um, manufacturing process before we start to see that.
0: And you, you mentioned high, high with memory, which is sort of this other area that gets a ton of attention. And th- some of the players that we have seen, we've, we've seen sort of SK Hynix get a lot of very positive attention, whereas say a Micron, which as a, a big capital uh, spending budget, at least uh, expected with the, the gigantic uh, expected factory in New York in the coming years. And and you sort of see this demarcation where it's perceived that SK Hynix is really, really good at this specific type of high bandwidth memory that's needed for these sort of AI accelerating chips. And yet it seems also that that Micron is perceived to potentially do a different type of uh, memory chip and, and is not given uh, the, the same level of kudos, at least in the high bandwidth memory space. But in, in shifting from GPUs to memory and high bandwidth memory, are are you seeing uh, a similar... I, I'm tending to see that the cycle is not the most favorable in memory generally, but people are saying maybe it's bottoming in, in the coming year. Uh, that, that could be an interesting place to base.
3: Yeah, no. It's it, uh, another great question. Um, so historically, memory has been a commodity, right? And wh- what do I mean by a commodity? I don't mean that it's not difficult to make, because it's one of the hardest hardest things on the planet to manufacture, right? Manufacturing leading edge silicon is extraordinarily difficult. Um, it's that it has complete replaceability between the different vendors historically. A Samsung memory chip versus a Micron memory chip versus a Hynix memory chip. For DRAM, it didn't matter, right, for a long, long time. Uh, So really, the only thing that mattered was who was the low-cost producer. And that's historically, and probably still today, has been Samsung, right, the largest vendor. Hynix came out with some really innovative technology around the high-bandwidth memory. uh, That led them to be first to the market. But I think both Samsung and Micron have some really interesting technology that will come along, and be able to come in as another source of memory. I think eventually high-bandwidth memory will become like all other forms of DRAM, which is it's okay to just swap between the three vendors. It just happens to be there's a shortage today, um, which should over time be good for the semi-capital equipment vendors who sell the tools that res- that you need for the manufacturing process as well, right? But that's an interesting... Comp-
1: description of where there could be some opportunities in these subsectors, I was going to ask you, are there places that are outside of the main focus of the video that you're excited on? But you mentioned Taiwan Semi is one of those cheaper stocks. Um, And this week, we also got some news from the White House, um, the Biden administration trying to put an executive order to limit investment in some of these high tech controversial areas. Mostly on the private side at the moment, and they seem to be really upset by Sequoia's private equity fund raising $3 billion to fund our perceived enemy um, and and in the private side. But how do you think about this risk of Asia, China, Taiwan, U.S., stuff, the Biden administration, or, or, you know, it's now like a unifying force to be who can be tougher on China, which scares me about the sort of Washington (laughs) politics on this.
3: Well, semiconductors are uh, rife with uh, geopolitical tensions, right? I mean, going back to the framework, Jeremy, about the linchpins, you know, semiconductors are the linchpins to our modern society, right? Because without semiconductors, we don't, you know, we don't have the Internet. We don't have um, uh, all the modern technologies that we love today. Moreover, semiconductors historically have been a natural monopoly business because of the very high incremental operating margins, right? Right. so you, you see ASML being in the Netherlands, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, more, but being a premier European technology company and that they're really the only company in the world that can do this extreme ultraviolet lithography, the EUV lithography that's necessary for the manufacturing of all leading edge chips in the world. They're the only company that can make this machine. It's the most amazing machine you'll ever see, you know, three three triple Decker, Decker buses side by side. It takes 15 different trucks to move. Three different 747s. I was sitting under it once, and I was looking up, and uh, I was really hoping it wouldn't fall on me. You know, uh, but it's, it's really it's, it's it's incredible. This thing, um, ASML is the only company in the world that can make that machine. TSM is by far the leader in leading edge silicon, and as a result, we make ninety percent of the leading edge chips uh, on the island of Taiwan. Right. So, so the clear geopolitical tensions. I think what's going to happen over time is that we're going to just see more manufacturing done in other parts of the world. So you're going to, you know, Chris Chris uh, uh, alluded to the to the Micron facility in New York. There's also going to be the Taiwan facility in Arizona. Intel's building out more in the U.S. Samsung's building out a big facility in Austin. There'll also be more manufacturing done in China. right? And if you look at the semi-capital equipment companies, a lot of their business has gone into China in the past couple of quarters. Um, you know, there's restrictions on what can be shipped there. But I think basically it's going to be a decoupling of the supply chain, which is going to result in higher capital intensity, which is going to result in a better environment for the companies that sell the lynchpin technologies into that over time. Because we're going to have to manufacture these chips in different places.
1: Is that a structural inflation bias? We're gonna have higher prices because we're gonna have to not we're not gonna be getting along with China, and this will be underlying higher prices throughout the entire tech ecosystem.
3: Well, so it's it's historically right. There's been two things that have dried tech to be very deflationary. The, The most important being Moore's Law, which has already started to break down, right? Which is that you can double the number of transistors roughly every two years in a given area historically that happened at roughly the same cost. Now that cost has gone up a lot to get that doubling, and it's also elongated the amount of time that's necessary to do it. Uh, The other is obviously the the mass distribution of the internet, right? There's a billion plus iPhone users in the world, you can reach a billion people so quickly and you can deliver goods and services super quickly um, because, because because of the mass distribution. I do think it's a structural inflationary story for semi-capital equipment over time there's something called wafer fab equipment intensity which is how much of every dollar do you have to spend on equipment in order to manufacture the next generation of chips uh when i started looking at the space that number you know was was kind of a single digit number you know percentage of the total revenue and as a result Wait for fab equipment spending was roughly 30 billion dollars when I started looking at semi capital equipment, which is effectively the total addressable market for, for these companies. Uh, last year, the WFB environment was 95 billion dollars. <laughs> so from 2015 to 2019, uh, to 2015 to 2022, we went from from 35 billion call it to 95 billion. This year, we're having a cyclical pullback. We're kind of roughly 75 billion. But I think over time, we're trending towards $120 and that WFE intensity will keep going up, which means kind of to the low to mid-teens on that percentage. The counter argument to all this is that I think AI will potentially be the biggest productivity enhancer for the global economy since electricity, because it's going to unlock such efficiencies. And so there will be real deflationary forces from AI, of course. Coupled with the inflationary forces of manufacturing intensity
1: going on. We've seen ChatGBT break out, one of the fastest growth to 100 million users. It's captivated everybody to use. Tell us about where you see AI having an impact. Will it translate, where it's going to really translate to new revenue? But you're also talking about it from the cost side. So give us your big view on, on AI here.
3: Yeah, I, I think I ended the last part of the conversation with, I think it's potentially the biggest productivity enhancer for the economy since electricity. So uh, bit, bit, big words, but I, but I, but I think we could back them up. Look, obviously, we've seen with chat GBT incredible, almost human-like responses when, when we're discussing with it. And that's really because if we look at the large language model, it's really because of this transformer architecture giving context, massive parallelism, and scale to the, to the models, right? That, that, that's the T the, that's the in chat, GBT. That's really the, the big innovation that, that, that we saw breakthrough. In terms of where I think we see it first, you know, I, the, the main place is gonna be in the enterprise. And, and Microsoft Copilot is such a wonderful example of what I think is gonna end up happening. If you look at companies who are gonna benefit from AI, it's really the companies who have two things. It's the data and the companies that have the distribution. Um, and who has all the data and distribution? You know, it's it's the Magnificent Seven, right? It's the large companies in the world. Uh, and this really goes to the point, is AI a sustaining innovation or a disruptive innovation? Historically, with disruptive innovations, we would see new winners emerge, right, come from the marketplace. So a perfect example is the transitions from PCs to smartphones and the world the world of windows and and Intel to the world to the world of Apple right and that transition that we saw, I think what's going to happen with AI is it's really going to be the big companies in the enterprise implementing it for 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 users where we're going to see the biggest the biggest shift and change um, to be very clear in the short term, I think it's an augmentation technology, it's not a replacement technology. So my associate Austin, he asked me this all the time, you know. Is is AI going to take his job? I I, I don't think so at all. I think it's just going to make his job, at least in the short term, it's going to make his job dramatically easier. You know, when we we write our notes internally, I like my notes written in a, 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 a certain way. NVIDIA reported X revenue, which was up Y percent year over year. This is versus the street's expectations of Z and Dom's expectations of A, right? AI will be able to do that very, very easily. But the key thing here, Jeremy, is it's not just you know predicting the next word, which is what AI is effectively doing. it's really predicting the next token. And so you can take these LLMs and you can apply them to a bunch of different um, use cases. So the obvious one is chat, but also we're seeing you know generative creation of images. But the one that I'm really excited about is actually in cybersecurity because it's going to be able to understand your environment and detect when uh, your environment is doing something that it shouldn't be doing. And so you're gonna be able to have you know, a typical security guy's list of things that he has to deal with, maybe thousands of, of, of cells long. The AI will be able to highlight these are the 10 most important today. And so we see real use cases that are coming in very, very quickly, and it's gonna make us all much more efficient. Finally, the last one that's most obvious to me is the the code engineering. Right, Most code engineers, when, with, with most code developers are seeing a 25 to 30% increase in productivity. Ironically, ironically, that makes the ROE or the ROI on investing in more code engineers go up <laughs> in the short term, not down. So you actually want to be getting more engineers. Um, and you'll be able to work on all these projects that we really haven't been able to see before. So I think there's so many different potential use cases that are going to make us dramatically more efficient in the short term. Now, the question is, how's the pricing going to be combined with that? And so Microsoft obviously came out with their pricing for Copilot, over $30 per user per month. Um, you know, that's, that's almost the price of a full E5 SKU from Microsoft, which is their standard bundle in the enterprise, their you know their main bundle in the enterprise. So these, these are going to be expensive tools, but I think that the efficiency gains that we're going to get from them are going to far outweigh the cost of them.
0: And, and Dom, uh, you, you mentioned cybersecurity. Uh, that's actually an area that we uh, focus on uh, a good bit. And one, one of the things when, when you focus on cybersecurity, you realize it, it, it at least feels like currently for each aspect that you're trying to protect, you need a different company. So if you're trying to protect your cloud access points, that could be you know, a, cra- a CrowdStrike type of company. If you're protecting your email, that could be a dark trace. If you're protecting uh, identity-oriented or single sign-on-oriented things that could be in Okta. And so when when you think of cybersecurity and how you have each of these companies that are kind of focused on this uh, very delineated area and really doing the best job possible, do you see AI powering maybe one type of detection over others, or do you think every cybersecurity company is just using AI fully, period, the end? Uh, I
3: think it's very early to know how the applications to play out, Chris. And if you look at the the, the strategy, uh, the way we've actually manifested a lot of our, our AI investments is deeper in the stack, either at the infrastructure layer or um, in the uh, in the semiconductor value chain. Because understanding how AI is going to impact all the different applications, whether it's at the cybersecurity level or whether it's in our day-to-day, is actually really hard today. Um, the, the the one that I would say who I think is extraordinarily well positioned for this transition is Microsoft. And historically, Microsoft has always been, um, you know, call it thirty percent of the functionality or something of some of these these point these point vendors, but much, much less the cost. I think AI will be able to increase the functionality pretty dramatically for the Microsoft security offering.
0: I, I was amazed at what. And, and and ultimately Microsoft was able to do in the sense that, you know, think back a few months ago, we're all sitting here, we're thinking, What what is this chat GPT going to be used for? And they're coming out basically saying that they're gonna start a search wars and they're gonna actually challenge Google and without actually, you know, changing anyone's behavior. I don't think Google's market share in search as yet has changed even one tiny bit. But you know, you know, the, the new technology combined with the storytelling and the fact that Microsoft just has such a reach in the space, you you at least had a whole swath of articles being published basically saying, you know, maybe, maybe Bing is, is going to suddenly go from, you know, non-essential player to proving out this whole technology. So I, I would agree that Microsoft so far is ahead of Alphabet seems, seems like, uh, you know, Meta seems to be doing something else with their open source, uh, and Microsoft is out there setting price points, really uh, progressing the field forward on this.
3: Chris, you know who's always underestimated in AI, though? Uh, Apple. Who? Apple. Ah, Apple's, yes, yes. Apple is constantly underestimated with the, with their capabilities. So, Apple, everyone talks about them, you know, being a secret CPG company, right? It, I, I think that's the wrong way to think about Apple. Apple is a secret silicon company. Apple's semiconductor engineers, I think, are second best in the entire valley, only to NVIDIA. And that's why you've seen such incredible performance either in the new MacBook, the M2 Ultra, the M2 Max, or on your phone. Um, if we're gonna do AI at the edge, it's gonna be done on top of Apple silicon. Moreover, they have the software capability to be able to implement LLMs and actually make Siri good, right? So can you imagine mm-hmm. if Siri was actually useful in your day-to-day? Finally, Apple is, you know, has won such trust with their consumers. And so they'll really be, if you think about who's got the best chance of being the best personal assistant, they really feel like Apple's very, very well positioned for that. But going back to the meta point, Another way that I think AI will monetize is, is through these kind of click-to-click-to messaging ads over time and interacting with businesses. So, so of course AI is going to make ads more targeted. Of course, we're going to be able to make generative ads happen, very personal for each individual. But the one, of, the one that I'm most excited about is for the day that we can just, you know, WhatsApp with our local airline when we have to change our flight and we don't have to wait for someone to get back to us, but that the AI just responds and rebooks us for us relatively easily. And I think that that's going to be really powerful over time too. You know, we have a lot of listeners who probably are in finance. You mentioned there's going
1: to be a time when AI can replace your jobs. Is is there any tools that your team is using today for getting better at finding the right stocks or analyzing the stocks? What are you guys doing?
3: You know, I'm really excited about this. Tiro T- T- R- was early to this we've been investing in data science for a long time we have a whole team in New York that's world-class um, and we're, we're working on things most things are still in beta now but but we have this incredible um, research organization of analysts all over the world right uh, and they're constantly writing notes about the most recent quarter or what they've learned or whatever that that's that note history actually goes really far back in time as well. We have it all the way back to the nineties. So when I, when I was writing my notes internally on AI, I went back and I read our notes from Cisco in the nineties. And I was, I was, I was making this kind of comparison to NVIDIA today and what did Cisco stock do versus what is NVIDIA stock doing? And, Cause Cisco was the linchpin of, of, of the internet boom, very similar to how, uh, NVIDIA is the linchpin of the AI boom. And so I think what I'm really the most excited about is being able to take all those notes, summarize them perfectly, search them, ask it questions, and then eventually maybe prediction. But in the short term, it's gonna be more of this augmentation summarization approach. You know, there's a firm called AI Era or Era that does some of these
1: earnings call summaries. We're starting to use it a little bit for Figuring out how to get some quick takes on these earnings calls. Um, we're trying to do more with tools for earnings. Uh, is, you know, I think there's it's just one example of something that we're starting to play around with and and use, but it's interesting.
3: Yeah, FactSet has a pretty good LLM summary of transcripts now, but uh, I, I I have to admit I uh the, the way I the, the way I do transcripts is the same way i do podcasts i listen and try to listen to them on 2x and get through as many as i can on the right home yep that you'd be amazed at how many podcasts chris listened to on that kind
1: of bandwidth (laughs) he's a machine he's like his own ai machine (laughs) well
3: the the key is trying to do it parallelly rather than serially if you could do numerous at the same time that's really what would make you efficient
1: Let's yeah, spend just yeah. a few minutes on the cloud because a lot of the stuff is happening in the cloud. Um, you know, some of the cloud companies say, uh, you know, if you're going to do AI, it's got to live in the cloud. I just want to spend a few minutes on what do you think about the applications of the intersection where where you see cloud computing and its evolution for for all this.
3: Yeah, I think this just extended the runway on on the the hyper growth that we've seen out of the hyperscalers cl- cloud businesses. Uh, you know, Chris alluded to how powerful Azure's been on this transition from Microsoft. Um, there's this narrative forming that Amazon's not as well positioned for for AI in the cloud, which I think is pretty silly. <laughs> you know at, at, at Amazon, one, they got so much data gravity, right? everybody has 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 moved many, many workloads to to Amazon. Two, they actually have an extraordinarily competent silicon team, and we've talked a lot about today about how semiconductors are so important to artificial intelligence. They have their own CPU, the Graviton CPU, uh, which is done really well. And then they also have some application-specific uh, ICs, integrated circuits, ASICs, uh, for, for AI, one being what they call Tranium, and the other what they call Inferentia. And then finally, the thing that's really interesting at Amazon is they have Amazon Bedrock, which allows people to you know, play with all these different LMs and stuff. So I think Amazon's really well-positioned, but I think Microsoft will continue to do well. And I think Google will too. I mean, I think this just means that the hyperscalers are going to have a nice period of extended growth for a long time. The main caveat though, Jeremy, is that capital intensity is going up meaningfully, right? Because you have to buy a lot of GPUs and a lot of memory in order to make AI work. Uh, We saw that in the, the Microsoft CapEx guide for next year, last quarter and I expect to continue to see their capital intensity go up. Now, the question is, are their returns going to go down because the capital intensity is going up so much, or are they going to be able to charge premium prices in order to recoup that investment? My gut is they'll be able to charge premium prices.
1: Yeah, that's the big thing. When you heard the video say, we're going to have a trillion dollars of spend, like, well, somebody's got to pay for that spend, so they better have a return yeah. on that capital investment. Um, so and, let's and, see. and that goes back to
3: the enterprise, right? So if yeah. you can make people more efficient, you can justify the investment.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
3: Uh,
1: we, let's talk a little bit, or well, Chris, do you have any follow-ups on the cloud before before I transition?
0: The the, the one thing, Dom, that makes sense to just uh, briefly explore is we were talking about the upcoming recession for probably the last two years. Uh, you don't hear as much about that. But what you do tend to see as these companies report is They're talking about whether it's the length of the sales cycle or customers doing cost optimizations. Are are you getting more uh, bullish or staying about the same when you're thinking about the potential for the software customers, the people spending money either at the hyperscalers or on some of the other companies like the Datadogs of the world, um, based on uh, where you think they might be with their ability to spend more on software? Yeah, You you have to remember... AI is still very small today
3: for, for most, for most companies, even, even Microsoft, you know, they said one to 2% accretion to their growth rate on Azure because of AI, right? Uh, TSM has said that, uh, their AI chips only represent 5% of their revenue, five to 6%. Now that's growing at a 50% CAGR for the next five years, uh, and that 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 will grow meaningfully as a percentage, but but AI is still pretty small. So go- going to your point, though, what we've seen is a lot of utilization optimization throughout the the software ecosystem. I think we're you know call it six six or seven innings in, into that. You know we're, we're we're getting there. We're not we're not quite done, um, but but I think we're probably past the worst of it. But that remains to be seen. On, in terms of the optimizations. But you got to remember, the optimizations are still the vast majority of the workloads, and that's why we've seen some weakness this reporting season. So so I think that will probably end in the next few quarters, but again, that remains to be seen. We, we started our conversation
1: on valuations we talked about the most expensive in but let, let's talk a little bit about overall how you think about the tech sector as a premium. You heard Professor Siegel talk a little bit about 21 times for the S&P, non-tech, we do a, a classification that gets about 40% of this, this S&P as what we call an expanded tech sector. That basket is closer to 30 times when the non-tech is closer to 16, 17 times, maybe maybe 17 times. How do you think about these premiums? Now you focus globally. Maybe you talk about the opportunities abroad versus the opportunities in the U.S. How do you think about these overall valuations?
3: Yeah, no, I... I, I... I, I think again, going back to the framework, there's four things I'm looking for: linchpin technologies, innovating in secular growth markets with improving fundamentals and reasonable valuations. Uh, the key on the valuations I've, I've found, and, and I've, I've learned this from uh, one of one of our portfolio managers internally, um, Dave, Dave Eisberg, who's taught me a lot, is is that valuation always matters, but it really matters most in the extremes, right? Extremely cheap or extremely expensive. If you're in the range of reasonableness, you're you're usually okay. When, when, when I look at the Global Technology Index, which is the one that I usually use, Jeremy, the IXN, the Global Technology Index is on a forward 2 PE, trading at 22 to 23 times today. It's historically, that's peaked at 27 to 28 times. And you know it started off the year at a high teens multiple. So we're clearly not as cheap as we were at the beginning of the year. But we're not quite yet at extreme valuations. The other thing we have to always factor in into valuations is interest rates, right? Um, And and where does the interest rate environment go from here? The one thing I'd say about the interest rate environment is it's really the magnitude and the rate of change that really matters for valuations in the short term, right? So going from 0% interest rates to 4% interest rates is really, really painful to tech multiples. Going from 4 to 4.5, not as painful. And so that, that's how I'm thinking about it. Uh, we're in the range of reasonableness. We're not quite extreme, uh, but it's something that you have to be careful of. And it's really what that's why you need to focus on for us the other three parts of our framework, making sure that you'll find winchpin companies who are innovating in secular growth markets with the improving fundamentals in order to, to navigate a difficult environment.
1: So you're you're 23 times that was two years out, right? So it's not 2024 yep. earnings. It's sort of two years out from today. In terms of the U.S. foreign split, you talked about coming from Europe. Do you take that statement that Europe has no good tech companies? How do you think about that in your
3: global tech strategy? Yeah, I would I, I would take issue with it <laughs> because uh well to, to be very clear, I'm from New Jersey, right? Like a name a name like Dom Rizzo, you're from, <laughs> you're usually from New Jersey, but. Uh, um, but uh, the I lived in London and my, my wife is
0: British and we we met over there and so so
3: Europe actually does have some wonderful tech companies. Um, two I would point out. So, so what what I've discovered in Europe is if if you're able to break through because of the the lack of capital uh, markets relative to the U.S. and the lack of the technology ecosystem, that you're usually a best-in-class technology company. So two names I would point out who I put you as. Best-in-class is ASML, who I alluded to before, but and as well, the payments processor. So if you're able to break through, you're, you're usually best-in-class. We just have a lot more shots on goal here in the U.S. If you look abroad, stocks are, are cheaper than the Magnificent Seven. Um, so we alluded to TFMC having a very a reasonable multiple in the mid-teens. I'd also point out Samsung kind of having a, a price to book in the 1.3 to 1.4 range. So there are uh, cheaper stocks
1: abroad as well. As you think about, oh, this has been a, fi- a fun conversation covering some of the, the, the most important topics of the day. As you think about your agendas, things that you're focused on at T Row, any things that, for people to stay in touch with your views and how you're looking at the world, how would you say people find you, what you're working on? Any closing thoughts?
3: Yeah, well, I'm all over the T Row website. We have plenty of stuff on there. So, so, so we, go, go find us there. Um, But, but, the, but the thing I would say is, look, the, these, these markets are difficult. Artificial intelligence is creating this tremendous opportunity. It's my my role on the Global Technology act, Equity Strategy to, to navigate that responsibly. So that's what we're trying to do. Well, we appreciate
1: you joining us on Behind the Markets. This is a fun conversation on the big tech trends. Chris Gennady, Global Research at Wisdom Tree, Dom Rizzo, Portfolio Manager for the Global Equity. Global Technology Equity Strategy, uh, at T. Rowe Price. Thank you so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Toots, on the soundboard, Sirius Studio. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz.